Bad news. Bad news for the state. Bad news for capital. Bad news for patriarchy. Bad news for all forms of domination. Bad news. Angry voices from around the world. Our monthly info show from anarchist and anti-authoritarian radio projects worldwide. If these news are bad, I don't want to be good. Welcome to the 55th edition of Bad News, Angry Voices from Around the World, a commonly produced monthly show of the anarchist and anti-authoritarian radio network, on this occasion composed by Free Social Radio 1431 AM from Thessaloniki, Greece. Starting the episode with an interview from Frequenza with Adam from No Borders team in Poland about the current situation of refugees at the Belarusian borders. Right. Um, we should be connected with Adam from the No Borders team Poland now. Adam, can you hear us? Uh, yes, hello to everyone. Oh, cool. Yeah, it works. I'm here in the studio with Sasha from the Ukraine and probably she will ask some questions as well. Um, yeah, first of all, going to talk about the current situation uh, at the border in Poland to Belarus and the situation of the refugees there trapped between in this kind of neverland between the the borders of these countries and um, the situation is going on since more than six months now and um, yeah maybe you can introduce first of all to our listeners uh, what's exactly the work you as no border team are doing uh, okay so uh like we decide to work as a no borders team like in a early autumn 2021 and we were uh, present on this uh, border since the beginning of this you know the corridor east eastern corridor corridor was open uh, but in some point we decide that we need to you know make some kind of uh, group that will work just on this so uh, yeah like from the beginning of september of 2021 the polish government makes a special zone It's like few kilometers uh, along the border where you cannot go, uh, even the medics or uh, you know any help is impossible. So in this point, uh, like many like grassroots groups that we are and uh, NGOs and kind of a lot of local people start to do it like more more or less illegally because any like uh, entrance to the zone was like. It was a risk of arrest or fine. So that's what basically we do since uh, September. Just uh, uh, try to find people in the forest and uh, you know help them with also the legal procedure, pro procedures and also like sometimes just saving their lives, especially in the winter when it's super cold. So yeah, but situation was changing. I mean, the amount of people also were, was changing uh, during that time, but. Um, like last month, it's still, again like a lot of people try to cross, and it's still like special zones. So, so yeah, 
Now we, the situation is not better. I think it's even worse because a lot of NGOs left this area to work in the border in Ukraine or do something else. And just a few groups stayed now in, in the border. So it's less people to help, but the amount of people that need help is still big. In the mainstream news, there was, um, they said that uh, a lot of the refugees now were brought back to the countries they, they came from uh, or they, they fleed from. So um, do you have kind of overview how many people are still trying to cross the border in that soon? Or is it less people than before? Or is it like the same amount of people? Maybe it's important to say like how it works uh, from the beginning, from the Belarusian side, uh, because this, the, all the plan of Lukashenko regime was kind of to pretend like a tourist office. So a lot of people that we met in in the forest, they just bought like the tickets for you know to go to European Union, and they was not aware that this border is impossible to cross. So, like, uh, during this, those months, uh, Belarus g gathered a lot of people, like thousands of people. And, um, yeah, they were using them in, like, a kind of tool to destabilize situation and also to bring this kind of uh, idea that Poland is a racist country, which is it, it is. But uh, we cannot, we can't forget that This is like was strict planned and uh, it was connected with like the Russian invasion on Ukraine. So uh, now when the war is in Ukraine is going on, uh, I mean, the, the migrants are not so useful anymore for the Lukashenko and for Putin. So, I mean, all people that they gather in this warehouse and camps uh, in the border, like some of them was deported now. It's quite uh, difficult to say about the exact numbers, but uh, for sure, like hundreds of people was deported last uh, weeks and last month to their uh, or you know the the countries that they came from. But also, like I think, like at least 500 people was uh, released and you know forced to cross the border with Poland. So, like last week, it was like hundreds of people in the forest, and like I said before, this all help is now much more weaker and now we are facing like a quite big repressions uh, in that topic uh, a lot of activists was now you know caught and they was arrested and now they have kind of charges for helping to illegally cross the border which is kind of absurd because it's impossible to help someone to cross the Belarusian border because it's super mili militarized uh, but the fact is that yeah if you help people there Like in, if you go to the special zone, if you give someone a blanket or you give someone a cup of tea or you lift somewhere, someone to the hospital, it's like a crime. So this is something that um, we try to talk about it in Polish, uh, like for Polish society, but it's hard to, you know, fight with this like mainstream media. But the fact is like the, if you do, if you're helping people in Belarusian border, you, you are kind of hero now in Poland and you can, uh, you know, you have support of all state institutions, like even the police is helping on the Ukrainian border somehow as But if you do the same, like like few hundred kilometers on north, it's you are a criminal. So, so this is like also quite a, um, 
this is a big concern of us. I mean, how far the state will go in this um, repressions? Till now, I mean, people wait for the trials, so uh, we'll see. Yeah, I guess it was really hard for journalists or activists to report about what is going on in, in this zone um, from the beginning. But now that the attention is um, on the situation with the war in the Ukraine and the Ukrainian borders, it seems to be quite obvious that uh, now it's much easier um, to act in a even more brutal way against activists and refugees exactly i mean uh, like the even before like the journalists have no access to the zone so all information in mainstream media was like from the statement of border guard and but so, somehow they tried to do it and now all the focus of society is like somewhere else so yeah it's like and also the less less people to help so it's really easy to now to to start this repression yeah The people which lived in this area near the border, they were quite active in the support of the refugees as well. Is this support still going on or is this interaction between like the No Borders team and uh, the locals, is this still existing and working at least? Oh, totally. I mean, uh, th this is something that is worth to mention. like. Even like if Poland is super conservative and kind of racist country, it was super amazing how people in Podlasie, the region uh, from the border, uh, organized themselves like grassrootly, totally, and they had no problems with breaking the law. So this was amazing to see. I mean, uh, they just saving people's life, don't care about, you know, charges that they can have. And this is our main uh, cooperation with local people because we also uh, sometimes work with, I mean, And during the action with some people from NGOs, but but for us, like working with local people is the most important because uh, from the anarchist point of view, it's super cool that during their activities they start to think like in an anarchist way. Also, they saw like the how the state is working. So so that was very nice. But the problem is, uh, you know, we uh, when we are there. Uh, we can make a shift, you know, we are staying there for one month and then we can go for one week for, you know, to do some our stuff. And also like other activists and NGOs can work like this. But the people that live there, they are, you know, 24 hours in this. They have jobs. I mean, they have like private life and they have like they help in the terrain. So after six months, they are exhausted a lot. And also a lot of them face like not kind of brutal repression, but government media show them as a kind of traitors and kind of criminals. So a lot of them have like, really, they are in bad conditions sometimes. Uh, so this is the thing, like they cannot go to for holidays from this. So, so they are still active, uh, but some of them just take a break to, you know, to somehow deal with their lives. Because like six months, like 24 hours, 24 hours per day to be ready to, you know, go for a mission. Is this too much for everyone, I think. But they are still there and we have a lot of support from them. Hello, I'm Sasha from Ukraine. I also uh, wanted to ask you something. So, yeah, I, I would agree maybe with you that this situation, especially right now, it shows that, like, the it makes it more obvious for people that borders are actually a crime. And I hope in the future, you know, 
when people will read about all these events in textbooks, they would be like surprised of how brutal and cruel were people just violating all rights just for some line on the map. And I wanted to ask you, uh, what are opinions of those refugees? If you had a chance to talk to them, like what would they think about they, they, their condition, like the, this power play, the, the situation that they were put in, like by the Belarusian president? Like, do you know what they think of it? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, they got a lot of lies in Belarus about, uh, you know, like I said before, they thought this will be kind of safe uh, passage to Poland. And uh, when they noticed it's not like this, they totally changed their minds. And uh, like some people were staying in the forest uh, like for two months and they tried to cross 10 times or 15 times and they were pushed back by Polish forces. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know even how to say it. I mean, they, they're facing like really uh, harsh uh, uh, treatment from the Belarusian side. Like people are beaten, women are raped and like they are threatened, threatening them all the time. And from Polish side, they, you know, they uh, they have pushbacks and they also, they are beaten and throwing to the cold river in the middle of uh, winter. So they are, the mostly they are scared and they just want to run away even both from Belarus and from Poland because from their perspective Poland is also this maybe a bit uh, better than Belarus because uh, sometimes they can get uh, like hospital treatment for example but but they just want to run away and some people just wanted even after some pushbacks because there was like a ball you know Belarusian uh, soldiers pushed them to Poland and Polish soldiers pushed them to Belarus some some of them just you know said to us that I want to go back to Iraq or Afghanistan or somewhere because I have enough of this but they cannot because no one let them to do it if they ask for asylum in Poland, uh, most of the time the Polish border guards don't care about this. And if they uh, take this application, they're going to really bad uh, detention centers uh, where, with super bad conditions. And finally, they will probably be also deported. So, so their idea is just to leave the Poland and go to the West. And this, like, if someone wants to have like the legal uh, procedure in Poland, we will help this person for sure and other organizations but but mostly people are not want to stay in Poland and yeah after like 10 pushbacks they are tired of this and of course they are aware that they are tool now but from the beginning it was quite horrible you know you, you are not ready you are not, you don't have good clothes because it's super hard terrain it's like primal forest hard to cross so a lot of people like we know about around 20 people that died I guess it's more because we still found the bodies, dead bodies in the forest. About their opinion, I think they just want to live in, you know, quite good conditions. And they know that in, that in Poland it's really hard with this, so that they want to go somewhere else. Thank you. Um, Adam, as we are kind of running out of time um, for today's interview, what things people which are not based or comrades which are not based in Poland can do to support your structures or to support the uh, refugees uh, uh, at the border? Uh, I think it's the, one of the things is like to spread the news because I have impression when I speak with comrades from different countries that societies in other countries are not super aware how bad situation it is now in Poland. So to spread the news is one thing. 
And about recent news from us, you can visit our website. It's like noborderteam.noblogs.org. And there you have like link to our Facebook and our Telegram. So also there are some uh, text in English. So it's good to share it and make it as loud as is possible, this situation. Also, it's possible to make some demonstration in the front of Polish embassy and also like European Union offices, because it's like it's not only Poland's Polish politics, it's kind of European Union politics to not let people in. So, yeah, like this political pressure, also their own governments, like government of Germany and, uh, you know, Fran I don't know, France. So that it's really nice if people will do it. And also if someone wants to support us, like with uh, some donation, there are also some kind of uh, money collection that is necessary to work on the border. So this is all in our website. So I think that's it. It's hard to say like if we need people here because the situation changed really fast. And I think it's, it's, it's more important to do things in, in your neighborhood and yeah, try to push European Union and Poland to change the politics. Right. Thanks for your update about the situation there. And I think we will definitely stay in touch and we'll try to report on the topic in future shows. Thanks a lot for your Thank time. You. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Bye bye. Take care. The next two contributions are from A Radio Berlin. An interview about the struggle of the indigenous Wet'suwet'en in so-called British Columbia, Canada, against the pipelines through their territory. In 2021, Germany spent more than 38 billion euros on natural gas. More than half of it comes from Russia. Because of the war Russia wages on Ukraine, there are discussions of not buying more gas there. But to meet Germany and Europe's energy needs, there needs to be an alternative source for natural gas. The so-called USA and Canada are more than willing to step in and export the gas to European markets. The problem here being that most of their natural gas comes from fracking and needs to be transported in pipelines that run through the territories of native people and First Nations. Already before the war broke out in Ukraine, A-Radio Berlin spoke to a Wetsuitan activist who tells us about their struggle against the coastal gas link pipeline. In Germany, I think people don't really know who the Wetsuitan are and where and what Wetsuitan nation is. Maybe you can give us a, a short introduction. Sure. So I'm Slato and I hold the name in the Cassia House, uh, which is one of the part of the Gedimden clan, one of the five clans of the Wet'suwet'en nation. And we are a nation in so-called northern British Columbia of Canada. And we have our hereditary system in place, still our traditional governance system, which is made up of five clans and 13 house groups. And so we have been working at um, revitalizing our system and protecting our territory, um, particularly against the coastal gas link pipeline, which is a uh, fracked gas pipeline that's trying to um, go through our territory over to the coast in order to export fracked gas to Asian markets. Okay, so you already mentioned the coastal gasing pipeline. Maybe can you explain a bit more uh, yeah, what it is and, uh, and when, when all this pipeline stuff started? 
Well, here in Wet'suwet'en Territory, we have been dealing with pipelines for about the last decade, and it's one of many pipelines that is proposed to go through our territory. Um, the construction of the pipeline in our territory started in 2019 after the courts had an injunction, a Supreme Court injunction put in place in order to prevent uh, Wet'suwet'en from stopping the pipeline. Um, Construction has gone forward in many parts of the territory. In Gidim Den Clan territory, um, they've done the least work. There have been three militarized raids in our territory since that time, but the company um, is owned by TC Energy, AIMCO, and KKR and um, they don't have the consent of the hereditary chiefs to go through, but they have signed agreements with the band councils along the route. And so they are pushing through without our consent. Um, they're taking fracked gas from Eastern British Columbia and uh, wanting to transport it over to the coast. This pipeline, once it is in operation, um, they would plan to uh, emit three and a half megatons equivalent of CO2 per year, um, which would be um, 4.5% of BC's total emissions and 0.5% um, of Canada's total emissions. And how, how did you start the resistance against pipeline? What did it look like in the beginning? And how, how does the resistance against the pipeline look now? So the resistance to the pipeline actually started with one of our neighboring clans, the Unistoten. And so they were blocking access to their territory for about eight or nine years now to all industry, including Coastal Gas Link. And the, um, in 2018, there was a, a court injunction put in place and the hereditary chiefs um, got together and they decided that Gidim Den Clan would um, put up a blockade in order to stop the company from getting to Unistoten territories and enforcing the injunction. Um, in 2019, early January 7th, there was a raid of militarized police that came in and made 14 arrests at Gidim Den. Um, there was another blockade in 2020 where the chiefs served an eviction notice to Coastal Gas Link and evicted all the workers from the territories. And at that time, there was another raid launched in February, a five-day raid on four Gidim Den or three Gidim Den encampments and one Unistoten encampment. And so after that raid, we saw Shutdown Canada happen. Indigenous people and our allies and accomplices um, basically shut down uh, major infrastructure all across Canada. Um, and then that ended because of COVID, when COVID hit. And then most recently, the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline is attempting to drill under our sacred headwaters, the Witsinkwa, um, our main salmon spawning river. And so there was an occupation that happened at the drill pad site in September. Um, and in November, the RCMP and the police came in with another militarized raid and arrested 30 people. Um, since then, the drill pad has been reoccupied. Um, and it was reoccupied for a couple of weeks in December. And then when the RCMP and the police started to um, 
started to gather their forces again to raid the territory. Um, there was a tactical retreat that happened, a strategic retreat of that area. So right now, their coastal gas link is continuing work. Um, the Wet'suwet'en are continuing resistance on the ground and have no intention of letting this pipeline go through our territory. So you already mentioned that you are using uh, uh, occupying different sites as a tactic. Can you maybe elaborate a bit more on, on what tactics are you using to to resist the pipeline, to well, to block the, the workers of the construction? Yes, so the enforcement from January 5th of 2020 is still in place, the eviction order, and so the Wet'suwet'en are enforcing that eviction order continuously. Um, there have been, like I had said, multiple blockades that have been put up um, in different parts of the territory, um, mostly on Gidimden territory, blocking road access to workers and preventing workers from um, from coming in. And so there's only one road that enters our territory in which the pipeline workers come into the territory. And so that road has been blocked uh, numerous times. We also have a uh, permanent occupation village site in our territory. It's called Gidimden Checkpoint, and I'm the spokesperson for that occupation site. It's an old ancient village site that has been retaken by the Gidimden. Unistoten also has a healing center on their territory, one of the neighboring clans, and they've been occupying there for about the last 10 years. And so we feel that um, occupying our territory gives us the best chance of knowing exactly what's happening out on the territory. It's in a remote area, about an hour away from the closest town, off of the highway on logging roads. And so uh, we have to be out there to know exactly what's happening on the territory every day. Um, the occupation at the drill, drill pad site closed off the main access road to the drill pad area where they plan to drill under the river. Um, so that's happened twice now. There have been, uh, there was a log cabin that was built directly on the drill pad site. And there were many um, other structures and tiny homes that were constructed and put in the area. So there was a, another little village site there called Coyote Camp um, during the occupation of the drill pad site. How, and how does the general public in British Columbia react to your situation? Is there any like support for for your cause, or how is the what reception did you receive? We have mass support all around British Columbia and Canada and internationally and in the world. Um, a lot of the organizations, environmental organizations, are behind uh, the Wet'suwet'en. There are a lot of anarchist groups that are supporting Wet'suwet'en on the ground and otherwise in other areas of the country. Um, we have a lot of other indigenous nations support. So during the occupation at Coyote Camp at the Dropad site, um, we had allies from the Haudenosaunee come over and um, occupy the area and offer their support. We have ancient allies, the Gixan, who are our neighbors that support the Wet'suwet'en. Uh, we just recently had a gathering where the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs uh, issued a declaration 
um, to BC and Canada um, to stop trespassing on Wet'suwet'en lands and to stop the construction of the CGL pipeline and to stop the um, militarization and the police from entering our territory. And that was supported by many other Indigenous nations um, in the area and across Canada. What, what can people in Germany or in Europe in general do to support you? One of the main ways is by um, amplifying our message and amplifying what's going on and following along. So we appreciate the, you know, the opportunity to be on your show today. And also that we are launching and have been um, campaigning against the investors of this project. The owners uh, are KKK, AIMCO, and TC Energy. And we know that these companies, TC Energy is also um, trespassing on other territories and indigenous lands and destroying other people's territories in the world. Um, and so we're launching a campaign against some of the major banks that are investing in this project and people can follow along at our page yintaaccess.com our website and there are ways there that people can um, support what we're doing from other countries and around the world Also, a short update about the Razzia in the Bublina squad in Czech Republic. Hello, comrades. We have someone news for you from the Czech Republic. You may be heard of the huge repression cases Phoenix 1, Phoenix 2, in which the Czech police tried to criminalize heavily some of our comrades there. In the end, they failed but that doesn't make all the stress that people have had during these years of repression and repression threat go away. Now the Czech police continues to repress our comrades in Czech Republic and they made a razzia in the beginning of March in a squatted house, a silent squad in Prague called Bublina that was and is until now shelter to people who have otherwise no home. The comrades who had and have to deal with that repression wrote a statement about the incident that we translated to English for you. And here we go. On Wednesday 9th of March 2022, police raided the Bublina squad in Prague and conducted a search. Four people, one dog and one cat were in the building and surrounding area at the time. The armed police unit broke down several doors but caused no injuries and no one was charged. The court-approved search warrant was built on the suspicion that one person present had committed violence against a public authority and also damage to property. The raid was said to be intended to help secure evidence of these offenses. During the search, which lasted several hours, computers, mobile phones, documents, a gas pistol and spray paint were seized. Then the police left and left the squad unsecured. It was later reoccupied. The suspicions stated in the protocol relate to several protests that happened last year. These protests were against the brutal police crackdown in which Roma man Stanislav Tomáš died after police officers pinned him to the ground and knelt on his neck for several minutes. 
The first event investigated was the burning of a barricade near a public gathering on 26th of June 2021. The second event was an explosion and fire on the outskirts of Teplice, poor northern Bohemia region, on 12th of June 2021. The first event investigated was the sending of a threatening email about the alleged placement of explosive devices at the police station in Teplice and at the headquarters of Agrofert, company of Andrei Babish, who was a Czech prime minister at the time. The Czech police have harassed many people in recent years and accused them of similar activities. For example, the Phoenix One and Phoenix Two cases. These cases did not stand up in court because the investigators generally did not have evidence to prove their disputed claims. Even this time they do not base their suspicions on anything but speculation. The proof is supposed to be, for example, that the suspect, like the perpetrator, uses the publicly available platforms RiseUpNet and Noblox.org. Another proof is said to be a match in height or two similar letters in a sign spray painted on the road and in a tattoo on the leg. The most ridiculous is the claim that the biggest clue is the presence of the suspect at the public gathering in Teplice on 26th of June when the barricade was set on fire. It seems that the failure of previous cases has not helped the Czech police to reflect on their stupidity. They are probably following the strategy. Last time we had nothing and it didn't work. But if this time we have even less, hopefully it will work. If you want to show some support, you can write on the email bublina at riseup.net B-U-B-L-I-N-A at riseup.net Razzias are always a big psychological and material challenge for the affected people. And that's why if you have the time and the energy, maybe you can spare some messages of support to our comrades in Prague. You are very welcome. As you already heard, the address is bublina at riseup.net. B-U-B-L-I-N-A at riseup.net. We wish our comrades a soon recovery from the incident and may this new repression case end as mildly as possible. We send strength and our best wishes to the struggle against racism and anti-Romaism in the Czech Republic. Going to Greece and Radio Fragmata from Athens with a short audio about the case of the anarchist Vagel Stathopoulos. Vagel Stathopoulos is violently arrested by the Greek anti-terrorist unit on November 8, 2019. He is to later find out that he is accused of robbery of an OPAP mini-casino play. While in custody in the police head office, Lefteris Hardalias, head of the Greek anti-terrorist unit, informs him. We are aware that you are not linked with the robbery, but we've got a surprise for you, to be announced tomorrow. The so-called surprise was charging him of being an active member of the revolutionary self-defense group. As soon as he finds out that he is accused of, Vagelis Tathopoulos makes the following statement from within the police head office. 
this stacked show against me comes as a result of the oppressive policies implemented by the present Greek government against the anarchists and the anarchic movement in general. The authorities have repeatedly lied about the way we, the anarchists, act and behave, having in essence charged me of half the penal code for simply providing my assistance and solidarity towards an injured person. Acting with solidarity, I have indeed helped an injured person in need. I am an anarchist, a member of the anarchist movement. I deny all charges related to the robbery and any involvement with the revolutionary self-defense group. Vagelis Tathopoulos is declared to be under custody and will spend the next 14 months incarcerated in Larissa Detention Center, secluded from his lawyers and family. He is sent to trial on March 2021, having been summoned only 10 days in advance. During the course of the trial, all accusations will prove to have been prefabricated. Specifically, during the robbery of the OPAP mini casino play in Holargos, Vagelis Tathopoulos had just finished his daily classes as a Kung Fu instructor at his training school in downtown Athens, and at the same time of the incident, he was in the neighborhood of Exarchia. Three witnesses will attest his presence there and testify in front of the court. The co-accused DM, who in his initial statement indicated Vagelis Tathopoulos as the culprit of the robbery, had already detracted his statement, declaring it was a result of threats and suggestions dictated by the anti-terrorist unit. An unknown caller allegedly informs the anti-terrorist unit that Vagelis Tathopoulos was the culprit of the robbery. This is a well-known tactical practice of the unit and its scope is to target members of the anarchist movement in the absence of substantial proof. All of Stathopoulos' lawyers repetitive requests that the unit presents in court the caller ID in order to be able to verify its authenticity and validity were in vain. It was alleged that the Greek anti-terrorist unit does not process caller identification technology. The DNA mixture traced in the motorcycle used during the robbery and which the unit attributes to Vagelis Tathopoulos is proven to be ambiguous and as such not a reliable evidence. This is yet another well-known tactic of the anti-terrorist unit that has led to imprisonment of fellow anarchists in the past. The unit also claims that the Kipseli flat, where the ammunition used in several revolutionary self-defense strikes was found, belongs to Stathopoulos' father, whose name is Konstantinos and has no relation whatsoever with the flat's real owner, George Stathopoulos. This particular charge has been proven a fiasco during the trial since there is no relation between the two persons but a mere synonymity. On top of everything else, the anti-terrorist unit presents basic athletic equipment found in the training school where Stathopoulos teaches the Wing Chun technique as bulletproof vests. Last but not least, Vagelis Stathopoulos' 1.93 cm height makes him distinguished through the crowd, yet not a single of the 38 witnesses has recognized him. Most of the witnesses are police officers that have witnessed strikes performed by the revolutionary self-defense. Although during the course of the trial all charges against Stathopoulos have completely disintegrated, the prosecutor Pieros asks for his conviction. The judge, Maria Yanakopoulou, sentences him in 19 years of imprisonment.
It is the same judge that had a few years ago sentenced Tasos Theophilou in 25 years of imprisonment, later reversed by the Court of Appeals. As an anarchist, Vangelis Tathopoulos has been active for years in the anarchist movement. During the years, he has faced various charges, such as being a member of another group, the so-called Revolutionary Fight, arrests, preventive arrests prior to demonstrations, and has been under continuous surveillance by the unit, both himself as well as people of his surroundings. In recent years, the Greek authorities have targeted the anarchist movement and violently suppressed it. They have been evacuating squads, beating anarchists and illegally placing tracing devices in their vehicles. In an attempt to demoralize physically, mentally and financially those still active and fighting, they tortured them, prosecuted and imprisoned them or imposed strict restrictions and burdened them with high legal costs. In addition, the legal framework imposed by the Greek government allows for suppressing attempts against the anarchist movement and legalizes them by making use of the new legislation 187A. This refers to any action they deem as terrorist act. This legislation is continuously being enriched and modified as they see fit. It is used as a tool to impose eradicate punishment to a multitude of anarchists. The anarchist political identity has been criminalized in order to act as an avoidable example for whoever thinks to react within the framework of a broadened anti-suppressive movement or to anyone sympathizing with the movement and its members. The present government of Kyriakos Mitsotakis, which has been elected based on the law and order dogma, had to present the results when it comes to police action and the CIA awarded Michalis Chrysokoidis was to undertake that task. And so, instead of focusing their attention in the prevention of criminal acts, their first and main concern was to present the dissolution of the Revolutionary Self-Defense Group as their success story, a narrative that has reinforced the Mitsotaki agenda among its voters. When Vangelis Tathopoulos was asked, he provided first aid to an injured comrade and has as a result been charged with severe accusations and convicted in 19 years in prison. What they are trying to accomplish through Vagelis is to send a message to anyone still fighting and not bending their head, to all those who refuse to close their eyes and look the other way, and who be placing their freedom on the line they remain humans. Through the words of Vagelis Tathopoulos, solidarity is what is being tried here through my case with the most severe accusations solely for providing my assistance to an injured person. The prosecution and trial of my case is based solely on political criteria for choosing to stand with respect and solidarity consistently throughout my life. I have nothing more to offer than my life itself. I have nothing more to defend other than the continuous fight against the government's and capitalists' murderers raving. Comrade Vangelis, stay strong. We'll fight till the liberation of our anarchist comrade. Σε ένα φθηνό μηχανισμό καταλύομαι Σε ένα φθηνό μηχανισμό καταλύομαι Σε ένα φθηνό μηχανισμό καταλύομαι Σε ένα φθηνό μηχανισμό καταλύομαι
Last Cernalukna, a radio show on radio student from Ljubljana, Slovenia, recorded an interview marking the 16th anniversary of the autonomous space ROG that was evicted approximately one year ago. Okay, so we will make a short interview about uh, 16 anniversary of Rock Squad uh, in Ljubljana. Also, there is uh, more than one year after the violent uh, eviction of people from Rock. With us is uh, comrade uh, that uh, is and was very involved in the Rock community. So maybe for the beginning, just in few words, you can present what does uh, autonomous spaces such as Rock meant for uh, our local context in Ljubljana. Uh, right. Um, in a few words, it's going to be a little difficult, but uh, it, it represented the the free thought, the critical thought, the uh, ability to uh, express oneself and to create in a space um, to meet with other people, to organize, uh, to organize a wide front against uh, all types of uh, repression, all types of uh, exploitation, um, and basically to to put up a mirror uh, to society uh, through which uh, society can then reflect uh, on the issues that are actually um, uh, present, that are actual, that are very insidious, that are very um, difficult uh, and that need to be addressed critically and uh, in, in an organized way. Okay, because maybe we also have to mention that the rock was quite a big complex ex-bicycle factory in the center of Ljubljana and also quite big community, like 200 of people were using the space and it was very open for the society. So this was uh, like quite big alternative uh, in the city. Yeah, it was actually um, uh, very important in, in these two ways. One, that it was gigantic, it was just very, very big. Um, It was, I think it was the biggest squat in, in Ljubljana, I think it's bigger than Mitirkova. Um, I'm not, not sure, but at least the building was huge. And so it was, it, there was a lot of space for, for, for people to, 
to get engaged and, and uh, do all of this. And then the second uh, important part was that it was that free. It was entirely uh, non-institutional. It was entirely uh, without legal frameworks. Um, uh, we know that there's a trend to try and uh, change these uh, autonomous spaces. If you cannot crush them, you try to sort of appropriate them and and Rog was resisting this for 16 years in a very successful way. So uh, that's 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 one of the uh, one of the yeah highlights of what it actually was. Yeah, because maybe one uh, small victory that we mustn't forget was the successful defending of uh, Rog in 2016, when there was uh, one of the attempts of one of serious attempts of the evictions. So uh, this is also saying something about the municipality, the government uh, uh, and their attitudes toward autonomous spaces. So can you comment what, uh, what are the answers of uh, government uh, to the alternative such as Rock was presenting? Yeah, uh, of course, such spaces are uh, as a critique as an example of what uh, is better uh, in practice uh, that you can see, it's, it represents a, a big danger to, to, to uh, power uh, hierarchical uh, uh, to governments, to, to capital. And in such a way, uh, these things are obviously met with uh, a very um, violent, very uh, intense sort of um, campaigns uh, in, in uh, all sorts of ways, legally, uh, through media, uh, and so on. And of course, the idea uh, as soon as uh, the uh, autonomous factory uh, was established was that uh, there needed to be something done about this and, and they needed to, to come up with a plan as to how to um, to get rid of it and uh, to get rid of something you need to, to put something else in place and their answer to that was to to try and kind of copy it a little bit um, to to say yes we understand that there are needs for people to create and so on but it needs to be safe uh, and it needs to and it needs to sort of create a little bit uh, of capital you know you can't you can't nothing can be you know free and so on um, and so they created this uh, monstrosity that was, uh, at first it was uh, obviously very, very commercial. Uh, it ranged from a hotel to various kinds of shops and so on, and very little space was devoted to actual uh, production spaces. Uh, when they noticed that there was a critique, obviously, of this, that, that society was rejecting it uh, immediately, they started to appropriate more and more uh, content from what was uh, from what was happening already inside uh, the, the autonomous factory Rob. So they, they tried to, uh, to to make it a little more the way it was. But um, obviously, uh, there is no way that you can that you can copy the initial um, um, idea that created it. There is no there is no way that you can. I mean, you can copy you can copy various sort of workshops and uh, or forums or, or yeah or forms of you know you can put ateliers inside you can have a library you can have a 3d printer you can have all kinds of expensive gear to kind of give uh, a, an image that this is a place of creativity but obviously um, this 
uh, important part of it being a place of critical thought, free thought, free expression, non-commercial, non-hierarchical. Um, it's not something that you cannot just fake. It's also something that you cannot afford to fake because as soon as you give this openness to such a place, uh, it becomes this mirror uh, where um, where it uh, where it shows that um, that uh, processes of gentrification are happening, where uh, um, exploitation is happening, where touristification is happening. Uh, and and governments cannot afford this uh, because it's going to destroy them. So um, so in a way, the answer is to to make it as as close as possible without without giving too much. It would be also interesting to talk about uh, anarchist, anti-authoritarian, and alternative movement in Ljubljana or community of rock. Because maybe it is also important to mention that uh, rock was uh, quite popular among people in general in Ljubljana. People in Ljubljana recognize that it uh, answers needs of quite some population. Also, for now, for the anniversary, you are hosted in a lot of uh, different institutions, like faculties, cultural institutions that are still supporting the idea of rock mm -hmm. and need and see the need for the spaces, autonomous spaces as such. Yeah. Yeah, we are, as soon as the eviction happened, uh, we've gotten a, a lot of letters of support and letters uh, saying look if you need spaces to continue your uh, whatever activities that you've been doing um, here's what we can offer and there was a lot of this and, and we've been active uh, like this I mean uh, in a way there's an expression that uh, um, it's maybe it has uh, connotations that are a little negative but if if you know you, you, this, is, this is like a cancer that needed to be taken out well now it's a metastasis it's it's across the entire city um, and so uh, the anniversary as you said is happening in various places like it has been uh, like activities in rogue have been happening in various places uh, not just in institutions and not just in uh, you know various uh, bars or, uh, or mm, private homes that are, that are that were hosting us but also obviously in the city you know you, you make interventions in the city and you take your city back visibility is um, rising more and more f uh, conflicts with their commercialization uh, attempts gentrification touristification rising of rents building new places everywhere so also the resistance is becoming, is popping up from more and more places and is quite vibrant. So maybe there is more uh, question of time when it will collide uh, together. Spring is coming, so I think they are good, uh, uh, good uh, conditions, conditions yeah. for the future to make uh, new autonomous spaces uh, Absolutely, absolutely. I think what I maybe forgot to mention earlier was not that these people are supporting us with their resources; that they are supporting us with their voices. They are they are willing to 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 support us if we decide to to do something like this again, and that's uh, that's very important as well. Okay, thank you for the interview. Yeah. No bastard ever came home from earning eight twenty-five an hour feeling proud. Minimum wage, just a fancy term for industrialized slavery. We're in a war. 
A war with the privileged. Those aren't streets you're sitting on. They're battlefields. And it is our duty to fight the comfortable and the overfed. So go forth, you sons of bitches. Izbojišće razredne vojne poruča Črna Luknja. This was the 55th edition of Bad News for April 2022. We're right in the middle of Sindama Square right now. Police is behind me. Many police officers have been hurt. Men and women who are trying to protect democratically elected leaders. Bad News. Angry voices from around the world. Local anarchists and anti-authoritarian radio shows on one spot. Tune in every 15th of the month. More information on a-radio-network.org. The revolution! The revolution! What's the revolution to you? <laughs> to kill your bosses and take their money. <laughs>